Well, good morning. Welcome to my war zone. I entertain the possibility today of wearing army fatigues to church, but I don't own army fatigues. And so then I thought, well, maybe I should wear a hunting jacket, but I don't own a hunting jacket either, probably because I don't go hunting. Um, I have hit two deers and one opossum with my cars, <laughs> but I'm told that doesn't count. Wow, my name is Nick Allen, and uh, I am really, I'm the family pastor here at Rolling Hills, and I'm thrilled to be in this spot um, where we get to open up God's Word and discover together what it says for us and the way that we live in light of it. Let me be among the first to wish you a happy Valentine's Day. I hope I'm not actually the first to wish you a happy Valentine's Day, because that means that the person next to you likely forgot, and I apologize on their behalf. It marks the 19th consecutive Valentine's Day um, that my main squeeze and I have been feverishly in love with each other. You can clap for that. Like that's, thank you for the slow golf clap. Yes, we're building up. Your 20 is coming. Not of marriage, but just of knowing each other and exchanging Valentine's together. Um, you might think that that probably means we met in middle school. Not so much. I need you to at least fake surprise um, that this year is my 20th high school reunion this spring. Yep. And you know what? It seems like ages ago that I sported my Beverly Hills 90210 Jason Priestley mullet with style. And in fact, it really was like yesterday. Not because it was yesterday, but because this timeline that we live, um, this, this experience that we have in life, it is just a blip on the radar. Like my life and even the, the possible 80 years that I will live of it is nothing but the dot on the eye of eternity's alphabet. And that someday God is going to come and he's going to put an end to this part of human history. But that's only so that he can usher in the part of eternity that will last forever plus like forever. Because eternity will march on and the moment that you and I live right now really becomes not even a fraction of the time that we're going to spend in the next. I do wish today, boy do I wish, that we could spend our time talking about love because I feel like that would be an easier assigned topic, but it's not. We're going to continue this morning talking about evil. Why not? It's Valentine's Day. Because here's the deal. As we continue the discussion that Jeff started last week with the idea of there being a battle between good and evil, it is important for us to be reminded that we have an enemy, that the struggle is real, that our, that our theme verse, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, is present and active in the world today. That our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. C.S. Lewis said it like this, Humanity falls into two equal and opposite errors concerning the devil. Either they take him altogether too seriously, or they do not take him seriously enough. And we're left this month, love month, buy a, go, a, a greeting card at the Target month, we're left this month to understand evil. Starting last week with the declaration that evil in fact does exist, and this week's explanation of the axiom that God in fact does allow it. Face to face with evil, it may seem like we've been battling it forever, and that the war on ter terror has been going on for ages, when in fact it's been relatively short when you consider all of eternity. In fact, any sort of 
evil that we stare at in the world, any sort of famine, any sort of disease, any sort of intense injustice, war, persecution, any sort of evil, we're often left looking at God and saying things like, how could a tragedy exist for so long? How long will the Lord tarry? How long can the world go this way? And how long can evil people reign and prosper? A, as long as it takes. And B, ultimately, it's really not that long compared to the timeline of what ultimately God has in store. Oh, to be able to have that kind of perspective. The one that understands the ways in which God is working, or at least the way that willingly surrenders and submits to the plans of God, regardless of what they are today, is a step towards that submission. Today is a step in that direction with another key question in our understanding of what evil is. Why does God allow evil? First response, who knows? But in a micro view, we first have to figure out what it is that we mean by evil in that question. There, there, there's a running theme, predominantly asked only among comfortable evangelicals, I fear. And it's a flip of that question, why does God allow evil, to be put more simply saying, why does God allow bad things to happen? And we often follow that up with a prepositional phrase, to good people. Why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? The real nastiness in that question is not in the fact that we feel permission to ask it. We stand before a torn temple cur curtain, forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ, invited to enter into the holiest of holies with thanksgiving in our heart. That's the promise that was given to us in Psalm chapter 100. With boldness of our questions, that's the promise that was given to us in Hebrews chapter 4. With any request on our lips at the invitation that we're given in James chapter 5, we can come boldly to God with our questions, just not our insolence. Because the real issue with the question is the downright futility of asking God anything that's already declared to us in this scripture. Why do bad things happen to good people? They don't. Bad things don't happen to good people because there's no such thing as good people. So back to the topic of evil. Why do bad things happen, period? Why is evil allowed, period? When we hear evil, we naturally and typically just assume anything that's wrong in the world that we live in, and we're the ones who get to declare, of course, what's wrong. Everything from materialism to terrorist attacks. Scholars divide evil into two categories, natural evil and moral evil. This is in your notes, and you can provide examples. Natural evil is calamity in the world. It's brought on by earthquakes, hurricanes, fires, famine, drought, just disaster. It's just the presence of things that are wrong and difficult in the world. Natural evil is calamity. Moral evil, however, is sin, brought about through things like murder, lies, adultery, and even just everyday, ordinary rudeness. All of the ways that we as people fail to love each other. That's how evil manifests itself. And today the message can be divided pretty equally into thirds. The first third is the assumptions that we have to agree on. These are things that we must assume to be true. And then followed up by the rationales, the reasons why those things are true. And finally, the truths themselves. The first assumption that we make today when we come to a message like this is evil only exists because God allows it. In fact, no evil that has ever existed has existed without the full permission of the great 
God of this universe. Spin the wheel of biblical narrative, and no matter where you land, you are presented with a story that has both the profound presence of God and also the pervasiveness of evil in this world. One such story that paints a really clear picture for us of what evil is on both camps, both natural and moral, is the side of Joseph in the book of Genesis towards the end. He's the only and oldest son of Jacob and his beloved Rachel, although he has a ton of older brothers who came through unloved Leah and a couple of concubines on the way. That's a different story. Joseph is the favorite. Joseph is the favorite of all of Jacob's sons, and he's not the eldest. It would have been okay if Joseph had been the eldest, but he's not. There's a whole bunch of brothers that come before him, and yet Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other brothers, and the brothers knew it, and they were jealous. They plotted to kill him, to eliminate him, to get him out of the way, and instead, wisdom prevailed, or the Lord, and they sold him instead to a group of slave traders. He's sent to Egypt, he becomes a houseboy, he's falsely accused, he's sent to prison, he makes his way out, he becomes second in command during a terrible season in the land of Egypt. And Psalm chapter 105 sums up the Joseph narrative and gives us the reasons why that story and all of its evil exists. In verse 17, it says, when he summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. One verse, capable of being a tweet, and yet we get both kinds of evil. Famine, natural evil, a calamity causing a struggle. Sold into slavery, that's the moral evil. People not being loving. And in both cases, who does the Bible say did that? It says he. Who is he? God. God Almighty. You see, the psalmist understood that God was both the author of the famine and the writer of the story that took Joseph to Egypt in slavery in advance to AIDS God people at the right moment when they would need him the most. Two kinds of evil existed because God allowed for both and ultimately God planned both. Evil only exists because God allows it. And we need that to be true. We need for God to be the one who allows evil. Why? Because evil is real. And if God didn't allow it, then that means that evil is left to run amok in the world without the control and the authority of God. And I don't believe that evil runs amok in the world outside of the bounds of God's permission and outside the bounds of God's authority. And I'm glad for that because I can't imagine living in the type of world where evil was allowed to run amok outside the bounds of God's permission and God's great authority. And you might say to me, well, Nick, I don't want to live in a world where God would allow that kind of evil. Well, A, you're welcome to live elsewhere. And B, yes, you do. Because careful thought later on would lead you to once again realize the ultimate blessing of being in a world where God is in complete and total control, even over the chaos. Evil only exists because God allows it to. And the next assumption is, Actually, turn in your Bibles to the book of Revelation. It's the last book, and we're going to nearly the last chapter of it. Revelation chapter 20, our next assumption says, God is powerful enough to eliminate it. And you should hear these words, and you should read them on the page, and you could understand that right here at the end of the story, it's like fast-forwarding to the last chapter in the last book of Harry Potter, and you're going to get to see that there is a victory, that the title character gets to live on in 
victory. In verse 7 it says, And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. That's a whole lot of enemies. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. So God's people are surrounded by evil on all sides. That feels like us all the time anyway. God's people are surrounded in the holy city by evil on all sides. But... Fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had, been de- who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. For all eternity, God is the winner. He is powerful enough to eliminate evil, and one day the Bible says that he will eliminate evil. There are moments when we come face to face with the clear and present danger of evil lurking in the world and we can't imagine what it's like for it to get any worse than it already is and we confess just how badly we want Maranatha, Lord Jesus, come back. And in that moment, it feels very spiritual to say, oh, I can't wait for the Lord to come back. But what we're really asking for in that moment is I don't like the way that you've allowed the world to go and I want you to speed up the timeline just a little bit because it's getting too much for me in all of my ability to handle this evil. I can't do it. Peter offers us a reminder in these moments in chapter, chapter 3 of 2 Peter, verses 8 through 9. It says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. That's why I'm about to have my 20-year high school reunion. I don't look a day over 37. Okay, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Evil only exists because God allows it, and rest assured, he is powerful enough, and he will one day eliminate it. In the meantime, third assumption, God is wise enough to leverage it. Back to the Joseph story. Because Joseph understood that about God too. This guy was sold, abandoned, tempted, falsely convicted, imprisoned, and still understood the truth about evil. He said to his brothers in Genesis chapter 50, starting with verse 19, but Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. God is wise enough to take an evil and to leverage it for his good purpose. That makes it hard when it's 2016 and we can turn online to watch believers be beheaded on a beach. It makes it hard when it's 2016 and we've got organizations and pastors standing up and telling us stories about children who are going to bed hungry for the hundredth day, knowing that they're not going to wake up for the hundred and first because their bellies haven't been filled. And it's a problem that we can remedy. It's called food. And we think of the injustice and we think of the evil and we think of why in the world would this be allowed to go on and how in the world can God leverage that for his good purpose? It becomes difficult for us in 2016 to hear stories even like this because we're sitting in comfortable chairs today while, while a pastor in the Amazon is on his seventh day of river travel to try to reach a conference facing dangers as he goes. Listen to this. A report that we got this week from one jungle pastor trying to reach the conference center where Jeff and Harold and Leo and other pastors will be this week to invest in the men 
who are taking the gospel to literally the corners of a river to people who have literally never heard this good news. Dear brothers, God be praised. We arrived in a village along the Amazon that I can't pronounce for you this morning. Today, the morning after traveling on the river, the river is very dry river and very difficult. Stranded boats on the beach and stuck in banks. We did not know the river we were on, a small canal, and we were around several times completely lost. God saw our struggle to navigate and provided a vessel that was traveling to Manaus and followed him. It has been a five-day trip. This was like three days ago. We were praying for God to multiply the diesel that we are to use much more than expected. God kept us from drifting away. Clyde, this is his wife, now is much better by the grace of my and our good God. However, we were very sad with the fact that a thief entered her mother's house when they were sleeping and took 350 AI, that's money, and her bag with all the medicine we had bought for the treatment and other things. That is in God's hands. And by his grace, nothing happened to her and her mother and relatives. My brothers, through your prayers, God has delivered us from evil. Pray that we can buy her medicines. That is what we are asking God now. Peace. We live in a world where that kind of evil exists and where our brothers and sisters in Christ and the persecuted church are facing challenges that we know not of. How in the world can God leverage those moments, much less allow them? I don't know. Here's what I do know. Just because I do not understand it doesn't mean that God can't. And just because I wouldn't do it that way doesn't mean that he isn't right. I know that our God is an incredible multitasker. And these two rationales are but a fraction of the reasons why he does the things that he does. Listen, we must consider the fact that God is far more concerned with our character than our comfort. What if the recipe of the character of Christ summed up by things like the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control has to include both the presence of natural and moral evil in the world to create that within us? What if by James 1, considering it pure joy when we face trials of many kinds, includes the kinds of trials that are caused to us both by calamity in the world and also sin against us? What if producing godliness in us was afforded more by problems than with perfection. Would we say that it's worth it? And are you okay to believe in a God who cares more about your character than your comfort and who allows the presence of evil in this world for the very purpose of leveraging it in your life to make you more like his son? For the few years that our girls were daisy scouts and brownie scouts, hawking their cookies all over the place, trying to earn a badge, we selected a day each season that they would come here to the office where I work and go door to door, cubicle to cubicle, offering the chance for people to buy cookies. And I always sent out a message beforehand to all of the staff that I work with to say, please only buy cookies if you want cookies. In fact, it would be good for us if some of you did not buy cookies and in fact told them no to cookies because we want them to experience rejection in good, safe ways now so they'll be prepared for rejection in really damaging ways in the future. We need to experience that sort of rejection as children to prepare us for a life of ultimate rejection later on. We need to be told no. And do you know what these people did? Every single one of them, they bought cookies. Some of them more than one box. Several as if they were trying to compete with other people to buy the most. 
a few of them who didn't take them home to share with their families, but left them in their desk drawer to eat all themselves during the middle of the day. Susan and I are going to have to come up with some other way to script rejection into the life of our kids so that they grow up knowing how to handle it as adults. We need to be told no. We need to experience rejection. We need to experience difficulty. I dare say we need to experience a little bit of persecution in this church because we know that the occasional dilemma in our lives develops in us the character of Christ, and that's worth it. God is far more interested in our Christ-like character than in our momentary comfort in this world because this world's not going to last that long anyway. God is also far more interested in his plans than in our approval. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 21 reads, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. And we need for him to be more interested in carrying out his plans than in seeking our approval. Why? Because his plans are good. And Jeremiah 29, 11, in the middle of a disaster in the life of Israel, God says to them, my plans are to prosper you and not to harm you. Forget this exile and the fact that it's going to last 70 years and that some of you are going to die right in the middle of it. Forget the calamity and the disaster that I'm bringing on you and that someone's going to come and ransack your holy city and worship false gods here and take you into exile and force you to be servants. Forget all that because I have a plan for you. It's a plan to prosper you, not to harm you, to give you hope and a future. And when you fast forward, because we're allowed to fast forward to the whole canon of scripture and understand that what he was ultimately talking about was the forgiveness of sins by the blood of Jesus Christ and the glorious hope that that is, we as a people must understand when coming forth with this question of Almighty God, why do you allow evil, that in him there is some plan, that in him there is some purpose, and that it's ultimately for our good. He cares about our character more than our comfort, and he cares about his plans, whether or not you and I approve of them. And this is why. Because there are certain truths that we simply cannot and should not ignore. And the first sounds like a really smart mouth, sassy pants response to this morning's question. Why does God allow evil? Well, you're evil, and he allows you. We are. We are evil. He created us. The Bible says in the book of Genesis, chapter 6, verse 5, I know that that's pre-flood, but it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Well, fast forward, he says it again post-flood in the Psalms 14, 3. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one scripture start to finish oh yeah well that's old testament you want a new testament example paul quotes that verse verbatim in romans chapter 3 scripture start to finish is clear about the sinful nature of mankind we are dark and evil sinners in desperate need of forgiveness and i don't mean just the evil mass murderers and baby killers and and and, and, and masked terrorists in the world i mean us we cannot separate the goodness from god from the wrath of God poured out on sin. And we also cannot forget that when that wrath was poured out on sin, it is directed at us. I have a target on my back, a very well-deserved target. And when God's wrath was cocked and fully loaded, ready to make an example out of Nick Allen and ready to make him pay for sin and transgression in his life, Jesus Christ stepped in and took the bullet that was meant for me. 
Now we're talking evil. Why does God allow evil? Well, we're evil. And he allows us. That's not the greatest evil. The God of this great universe ordained the greatest of all evils at the cross. When Christ died for every evil that had been committed and the, even the evil that I stand before you today knowing has yet to be committed. In Acts chapter 4, we read these words concerning the arrest, the trial, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Starting in verse 27, it says, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever. If you're a person who likes to underline words in notes or in Bibles, underline that word, word, ever. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. It would be easy to blame the Jews who cried Hosanna one day and crucified the next. It would be easy to blame the government for enacting the most harsh, evil, heinous death sentence imaginable in crucifixion. It would be easy to blame people who had in one moment declared that Jesus was innocent of any capital crime and yet in the next chose to kill him on a cross. But those aren't the culprits. Those people aren't the reason that Jesus died. I dare say that you and I are not either. Because the answer that Acts chapter 4 gives us is God. God allowed it. God actually ordained it. God purposed it. God destined it. And there, right there in that moment, you and I have what I would offer as the final answer of why does God allow evil? It serves his divine purpose. And it offers ultimately to us his good plan for our lives. This life is just a vapor. It's just a dot. And every difficulty that we experience in it is just a moment in the grand scheme of what God has planned. And it's leading up to something wonderful from the maker of the known universe and from the savior of all things. Because in him, that's Jesus, we have an inheritance that we can't imagine. Ephesians chapter 1. It's in your notes. It says, in him, that's Jesus, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, good things, bad things, ugly things, evil things, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And you, you and I, we only get to the point in our lives where we are both able to understand and accept these assumptions because of these rationales and the truths that they support. We only get to that point through salvation in Christ and through Holy Spirit leading. 
Only by the power of God can you and I come to a question this big and walk in it, uh, away with an answer that clear. Why on earth does God allow evil? Because it serves his divine purpose. And we are fortunate that it does. We are blessed that it does. We are changed because it does. We are only saved because it does. You and I are only offered salvation because the God of this universe endured and allowed great evil. And I fear ever becoming a person who would stand before God with my fist in the air, angry over the evils in my day, failing to recognize that a far, infinitely far greater evil occurred during his the death of his son for a sinner like me. May the only understanding I need to why God allows evil in this world be that it serves his purpose, that he is God, and that it's for our good. Would you pray with me? Holy Jesus, we recognize today as people that there is no evil we could complain of that you have not experienced yourself. So Father, help us to understand by your salvation and help us to understand by your spirit leading who you are and who we are to be in light of it. My prayer for us today, God, as we respond, is that we would, we would submit to you, to your authority. My prayer for a person in this room who has not yet experienced the joy of your salvation is that today you would call them and that in moments from now, they would move out of their seat, ready to pray with a man and woman of God who desires to lead them to saving faith in Jesus Christ. If there's someone here today, God, who has yet to believe in you and your son, Jesus, my prayer is that today would be a different day for them. For others of us, God, I pray that it would be a day when we do nothing more than offer you our question, yet also our submission. We understand, God, that you have a plan, that you have a purpose, and that it is for our good, regardless of our comprehension, regardless of our approval, and regardless of our willingness to go the distance understanding what you're doing. Father, I pray today that you would remove yet another layer of the fogginess from our eyes so that we can see the world and everything in it, especially the bad parts, as pieces of a plan that you're working out for our good. We claim that today, God. 
we claim today, maybe reluctantly, maybe wholeheartedly, that the evils in this world are yours, yours to do with what you will. And our prayer is that we'll use it as a way to draw other people closer to Christ because of it. It's in his name that we pray. Men and women, I invite you to stand. We enter into a time of response where we ask God to move in us. And as you do, there are men and women who are moving to the sides of the auditorium to receive you. People that want nothing more than to pray with you over what the Holy Spirit is speaking to you now. Um, Let's stand as we worship.